January 2011. Swiss twins Alessia and Olivia Shep, six, are abducted by their father during a routine custody visit. Their parents had been experiencing a tenuous separation. By the time the police take the case seriously, the abduction has become a multi-country investigation and over a decade on, we are still yet to discover the whereabouts of these innocent little girls. Where are Alessia and Livia? If you have information on the whereabouts of Alessia and Livia Shep, please contact Missing Children Switzerland on 116 or at missingchildren.ch. Primary sources for this episode include the CBC, the BBC, True Crime England, WordPress, The Ottawa Citizen, The Telegraph and The Toronto Star. Welcome back to episode 144 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope that you're all doing well and you're looking forward to having a nice relaxing weekend. Now, before I get into this week's case, I saw a quick update on an episode we did um, a fair while ago. It was episode 81, Giulio Regini. He was the uh, Italian PhD student who was tortured to death by police slash security in 2016 in Egypt. Uh, it seems that they kind of thought that he was a spy. Um, I randomly stumbled across uh, today, actually, just uh, that a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a bit of a kind of development in the case and it's it's not a good one. So essentially where that case stood was Italy was going to try their security personnel, four of them in absentia for the murder of Giulio. Uh, however, as of a few weeks ago, uh, the trial has been suspended until further notice because, and I'll read you the um, the Italian reasoning for this and see if you can make sense of it. Quote, the judge suspended the trial uh, last year, citing concerns that it was unclear whether or not the officials were formally aware that they were charged in the 2016 abduction, torture and killing of Regini, unquote. So apparently with Italy, you have to actually advise the people. And because Egyptian authorities won't hand over their details, uh, you can pretty much just ignore the police and go about your life and that's the end of it. It went to appeals. That's what this ruling was a few weeks ago um, and the appeals court upheld the decision to suspend the trial. There's been quite big protests, um, especially in the city that Julia Regini is from. Uh, so it's worth looking into that case because obviously those protests, when they happen, that's when there's more media associated with the case. So please go back and listen to that episode because uh, no matter what they think he was doing, and I feel like it was innocent, um, maybe not in their eyes, uh, he di did not deserve what happened to him and no one does. So that's the only case update I have for you at the moment. So this week I'm kind of stepping away from Patreon location requests in a way. So this case is actually for patron Medell. But because Medell requested any case that I want to do um, on my list and said they didn't have a choice 
the for a location when they came on board, um, I've chosen the case for them. So Medell is from St. Francisville in Louisiana. I have quite a lot of um, patrons and listeners in Louisiana, which is cool, and said to do any case. So that's why I chose the case of Alessia and Livia Shep. It was on my shortlist, which I've got on top of my Patreon location requests. And looking at pictures this or about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, trying to choose which case to do, I kind of looked at their picture and it it really drew me in to really dive deep into this for you guys. Um, And it was mainly just their innocent little faces. We don't offer cover often cover children on unknown passage unless it's a abduction where we don't know where the child is so far. We did the Camellia Spencer episode, which was way back on episode 20. She was abducted by her father, her paternal grandmother and her paternal great-great-grandmother. And since I think it was 1999 from memory, we still don't know where they are. That's a really good case to go back and listen to if you want to if you're into online sleuthing, I regularly go back and do online searches, kind of trying to think like these people, which is what I've had to do for this episode. But because my mind doesn't work the same as these men in this instance, um, I'm not, I'm unable to. Camille Spencer could be anywhere. We also covered the abduction of Catrice Lee, which by all accounts seems to be a stranger abduction. She was a British a little girl, toddler, that was abducted from a supermarket in Germany um, in the 80s. And her dad is still regularly on British TV trying to get um, attention on that case. So go back and listen to Catrice's episode. But we've never covered twins and thank God and hopefully we will never have to again. But today we are. It really concerned me when I looked at this case that A, I'd never heard of them before and I'm pretty good uh, with true crime and missing people. Um, But also when I started really looking into research, it really upset me that they got so little international coverage, uh, so little in the countries, so many of the countries where this happened, um, so little across Europe and nothing really beyond Europe at all, actually nothing. Um, They there's two of them. They're essentially the same age as Madeleine McCann, but for some reason the McCann case, which is one I won't be doing, not that I begrudge a little girl, but I begrudge her parents quite a bit for how much they say they haven't had help when the whole world knows that little girl's name and they've received tens of millions in funding looking for her and all this attention and they have the gall to say that um, when there's constantly people on that case and there's constantly media about Madeleine McCann and there's constantly developments and Livia and Alessia, I think in the same way that Catrice Lee was barely commented on and Camelia Spencer has barely any coverage, I believe it's because in these cases where a parental abduction is suspected, they immediately just switch off. They go, well, this is an issue between the parents. They'd never hurt them because they're one of their parents and clearly that is not the case, <clears throat> which I believe Camelia Spencer is out there alive but I do not believe, and I'll say that from the outset, that Alessia and Livia are alive. And as we get into this, I think you'll realise that too. I mean, they're these angelic little blonde white girls with these ch- cherubic faces, um, Alessia in particular. And you'd think 
that more people would care if we're talking about people who fit the um, archetype of the perfect victim. But in this case, that's just not the case. Um, They went missing four years after Madeleine McCann in the same geographical part of the planet. Um, Albeit this spans four different countries and you would think that that would kind of draw in journalists who want to do some investigation more, um, but seems to be not the case. To me, it is not a mystery what happened in this case. The mystery lies in where Alessia and Livia are, in what country, um, and the fact that they deserve to be brought home to their mother who loved them. Now, next month in October, they would have turned 18. They were six when they were abducted in 2011, and I felt that it was timely to cover this. I want to give a quick shout out to a really good independent blogger called truecrimeengland.wordpress. They had a lot of information that initially kind of, I started to question how they knew this stuff. I don't know who the person is that runs it, but their about me little part says that they are a, they have like a master's in um, psychology and investigative stuff. And I think they have their sources and I believe that they are a legitimate source. They were so helpful. Their massive write-up on their website, which I've linked on unknownpassagepodcast.com to go take a look at. They do a whole massive write-up on this case, as well as many other cases and international cases. And they had so many details that the mainstream media just left out that I questioned until I decided to check this source out. And it turned out that it answered a lot for me. So as we always do, let's start the episode by talking about who Livia and Alessia Shep were. Alessia Vera Shep and Livia Clara Shep were Swiss twins that were born on October 7th, 2004. At six, during a routine custody visit with their father, he abducted them and took them on a cross-country road trip of sorts. Why can't we ask their father, Matthias, where they are? Well, we'll get there. The girls' parents were Irina Lucidi, who was born in Italy but lived in Switzerland. Her married name was Irina Shep and she practised as a lawyer. Their father was Matthias Shep. Now, Matthias is spelt either with one T or two. The sources are split 50-50 on how they spell it, which was concerning to me because you'd think it would be a basic thing that someone would want to clarify. Um, the CBC has two T's, you know, the BBC has one T. Um, so keep that in mind if you ever do a search on this. Now, he was an engineer, but he was actually born in Canada, but he had lived in Switzerland, I believe, for a long time. And judging by his name, I presume he was probably from a Swiss family now, the reason I don't know that is because there's nothing out there about Matthias, his upbringing. There's never a quote about who his parents were from any siblings, if he had any. Everything about Matthias is purely from the time that he met, um, you know, Irina. And that kind of says to me, if there's no family coming out, in his defence and saying what a great guy he was in all this time, um, they're probably keeping their distance and probably have suspicions of what kind of person he was. 
but his job was an engineer. So the two, I don't know if this is how they met, but they both worked at Philip Morris in the city of Lausanne in Switzerland. Now, Philip Morris is an international cigarette company, most famous for um, being the brand that houses Marlboro. According to their website, they're moving away from cigarettes and things, obviously, in this day and age. So I don't know if that's how Matthias and Irina met, but she was working in a legal role at the company and he was working in an engineering role. So they met and basically Irina spoke to the Ottawa citizen and it's weird because Canada has done a lot of coverage of this and there's no link to Canada beyond the fact that once upon a time Matthias was born there but hadn't lived there for many years or maybe even decades. So kudos to them. But she told the Ottawa citizen that the man she met was tall, athletic, he was a jokester, good looking. She said he was extroverted, he was always kind of mucking around and having fun and he seemed like a good choice. She was not young and naive, she was an intelligent woman, she's a lawyer. She was also in her 30s when she met him and she was in like, I believe she was around 36 or 37 when she had the girls. So... She'd taken her time to make a good choice and I guess that's what we all hope that we will do. But some people are just better at disguising who who they are at their core, I suppose. So the family settled into what they call a villa, a large house in the suburbs of the city of Lausanne, uh, which is kind of southwest of, um, it's not very far from Geneva. Um, And This suburb is called San Sulpice. Now, there is a church, a very famous church in Paris called San Sulpice, and there's no connection to that at all. So the two married in July of 2004 in Italy, and just two months later, seems it was a bit of a shotgun situation because they welcomed their only children, their twin girls, Alessia and Livia. And it was not long after that that the cracks began to appear in Matthias, which sadly is a very common story of men who, it's more often men that can't handle the reality of having a family, having responsibilities. I have experience with a very close family, male family member who behaved like this. Um, It's all too much for them. And it's also, which we've talked about in the Camellia Spencer episode, I believe, sadly during pregnancy and when a woman has children, obviously they have that maternal attachment to them. And sadly, it's often when women are at most risk of domestic violence, um, being kind of stalked, being um, verbally, emotionally and physically abused. And a lot of the time that stems from men who are jealous, basically, of the woman being pregnant um, and suddenly the attention is not on them. And I believe that that is honestly why the cracks began to appear in Matthias. But I do firmly believe that this was always his character. Uh, He just hit it very well. So Matthias was around the same age as Irina. I believe he was about a year younger. They were around 36 and 37 when they had the girls. And the family settled back into life in Sansalpice Now, it sounds like the dream, you've got the perfect family, two perfect looking twin daughters, they've both got high paying, brilliant jobs, a beautiful home, they live in one of the best countries in the world for quality of life, standard of living, 
and money would not be an option. But as we know, things, as we know with the internet and social media, what people put out there is generally not the reality of it. And if you ever feel bad, you should remind yourself of that. According to True Crime England, Matthias, this is how Irina described Matthias. Quote, from the moment they met, Irina described Matthias as tall, sporty, blonde and considerate, unquote. But soon he became a tyrant. Now, Matthias loved boats, um, not massive ones, not like yachts, but he had his own boats because money wasn't really an option. And he owned four. And according to investigators, these four boats were located in the port of Morge, I think is how you say it, and Vidi. Now, I looked these up and these are both in the vicinity of where they lived. So the city of Lausanne, which is spelt like Law. Sani, but it's Lausanne in Switzerland on its kind of western side. It's located on Lake Geneva. So these are kind of spots along Lake Geneva uh, where he had the boats. But I mean, he seemed to be a guy who I guess had the smarts to maybe have another one. But I do think since 2011, it would come to light if he had. So it was following the twins' births that Irina reported uh, that Matthias's behaviour towards her and this chilled out kind of guy that she'd met uh, suddenly became a thing of the past. By the time the twins were toddlers, Matthias had escalated his behaviour, according to True Crime England. Uh, he basically started controlling every aspect of life at home. Uh, which should have been a time for them to enjoy their healthy little girls. Um, But he was instead running it like a drill sergeant. He controlled what they watched on TV and movies, what they did uh, when the family went to bed, uh, including Irina, um, and ordering chores to be done to his impeccably high standards. And he seemed to be a very kind of type A, I suppose. But even more so to an extreme, I guess. By 2006, Irina said, quote, sorry, by 2006, Irina said that he had entered this kind of victim mentality. She said, quote, he was always the victim. He's being unjustly treated, unquote. So he was, you know, moody and sulky and taking away the joy of what should be a really special time. Irina, to her credit, I suppose, pushed for marriage counselling for the sake of her family and Matthias said no repeatedly. Uh, I guess that would mean relinquishing some level of control uh, and he was enjoying probably the control he was having and people walking on eggshells around him and stuff. But finally, I think he probably relented and went because he realised that uh, Irina would leave him if he didn't sort his shit out and he agreed to go But then Irina said something very interesting that really stuck with me. She said that the counselling actually had the opposite. It did the opposite of what it was intended to do. She said, quote, it seemed to reaffirm for Shep that he was somehow a victim, unquote, which is a really interesting thing, you know, with him having talking through this, he could say anything he wanted to this marriage counsellor 
and now he's verbalising it and he's like, yeah, that's right, I am a victim. I've got a perfect family, a perfect job, you know, a perfect life, a perfect house, a perfect wife. I'm a victim. So I don't, I fucking, I hate this guy. I'm sorry, guys, but you'll see. So they lived in this Swiss suburb of San Sulpice, uh, which is on the outskirts of the city of Lausanne. It's right on Lake Geneva. It's located in the southwestern portion of Switzerland. So basically at this point, if you go south, you end up in northern Italy and down into Milan. Uh, if you go west, you cross over into France and it's very close to Geneva and actually the closest to another episode we've done physically that Sansalpice takes us to is the Annecy shootings episode that I did with Nate. Uh, Annecy is just over the border and actually during this we'll travel through Annecy, um, although we don't know what Matthias did there. So Geneva is around 50 minutes away. The couple would commute into Lausanne for work uh, and they would spend, you know, their off time on the family's boats or Matthias's boats, as it's put, uh, on Lake Geneva where they were docked. And for some reason, he needed four of them. I don't know. So the city of Lausanne is a perfect blend of these ancient medieval cobblestone streets and modern additions and it's very Swiss, very pretty. It's home to around 140,000 people. <clears throat> I've been to Switzerland and if you've been, you just know everything is such a high standard of living. I think it's got the cleanest air in the world. You know, it's a it's a beautiful place for people to, to live. To describe Livia and Alessia, they are twins, but they're not identical. And you can tell that just by one glance at their photo. The photo that really drew me in is the one I've made the episode photo for Spotify, if you're listening on there. And if you're looking, uh, Alessia is on the right of that photo and Livia is on the left. Alessia has this cherubic little face. She looks like her dad and Livia looks like Irina, which is funny because, um, you know, they're twins. But actually to me, Livia looks a lot more, she looks a lot older and more mature uh, and she's got a totally different face to Alessia. Alessia's got this little, she looks like a painting of a cherub, you know, like a Renaissance painting, a uh, little kind of short blonde do and just a sweet little face. She's often making kind of like naughty expressions in their pictures. Um, and Livia has a more kind of mature face, um, but they're, they're beautiful little girls. Um, to describe Matthias, he was blonde and seemingly tall uh, I guess he, in theory, looks like your perfect kind of German slash Swiss, you know, he's got that Nordic kind of, he's got almost a Scandinavian look um, and he wore glasses and he's wearing them in most of his pictures and both of the girls wore glasses and I, it's never commented on or anything, but I noticed that the only thing that's a bit off about him, which I can't talk because my eyes are like a bad with my disease. Um, but he's a bit cockeyed. His eyes look different directions. And I don't know if that's like a genetic thing, why they ended up wearing glasses as well. Now, if you're wondering what language they speak, they speak French mostly in this part of Switzerland. Um, but the girls were fluent in French and Italian because of the location of where it is. And at six, they were both 
fluent in both. Now, I don't believe they were fluent in English, um, but they mostly spoke French at home, but their mum's Italian. So, so six months before the girls vanished in the August of 2010, Irina had finally had enough and she left Matthias. Now, this was Irina's choice. According to, uh, I believe it was True Crime England, I found this was telling, whether it's true or not, and I do trust their sources, Matthias stayed in the family home and Irina and the girls had to go and get an apartment somewhere, which is like another red flag to me because most men would move out so that their girls didn't have to uproot their lives. So it's just red flag after red flag. But without getting into it too much, this is, I, I, up until a point, I lived what these little girls lived at six years old. I was going through the same thing and I can tell you all the thoughts they had. Um, and I had the same parental dynamic, almost identical. Um, I had one parent essentially stalking the other, um, laws were different than domestic abuse laws just didn't exist. My mum essentially was between a rock and a hard place. Um, and she often feared for us going with my father because he was in such a uh, bad mindset after they split. Same as Matthias, caused it all, but always the victim. Um, and as they called Matthias, someone called him a split personality, one of Irina's family, family members. And yeah, I just, I can, without getting into it too much, I just, I just know what these little girls, you know, were going through. So luckily for me though, we stayed in the family home. Um, albeit if my father had had his way, it would have gone the other way. Uh, but he essentially made us move ultimately, um, which is a whole other story, but I'm older now, it's been a few decades and I've made peace with that. <clears throat> but I'm just saying early on, this stuff affects you for years. Uh, so if you're kind of having blow-ups and things like that and you've got kids around, um, if you want them to be like an anxious, worrisome head case 30 years on, uh, then go for it. Uh, but if you want them to not be like that, um, maybe don't do it around them. So when because kids pick up on everything. So ultimately, Irina and the girls moved out of the home. Um, and when she moved out in the August of 2010, her friends, she said, asked her why she was leaving because he was such a good guy. She said that they said he's such a good dad and he's such a good husband. And it just shows that people don't know what's going on inside. Uh, Irina said, quote, he was very good at hiding. It's difficult to detect it because from the outside, he was perfect, unquote. So they were still both in the suburb of San Sulpice. Uh, and according to the Ottawa Citizen, the agreement was that they weren't formally divorced yet, but they were officially separated. And the agreement was that Matthias would get the girls every second weekend and two days during the week, which is more generous than a lot of custody uh, deals. And so he'd he'd essentially have like two days with them during the week and a full weekend Friday to Sunday with them every second weekend. And remember, he's working full time. So that's usually why the mother gets custody. Irina said later, quote, I was very generous. I would never have taken them away from him, unquote. And it seems that really she wouldn't have. 
Now, little has been said about Matthias being physically abusive or anything to Irina. It seems that he had a lot of mental disturbances. But Irina at the time did not harbour any fears for her daughter's spending time with him because she felt that he was a perfect dad and all of his hatred, I guess, or anger was directed at Irina, not the girls. But as I know, you're often seen by one parent as an extension of the parent that they despise. And I'm in the middle of that in terms of both see me as the other one, uh, physically for one and personality-wise for the other. So she didn't withhold any custody at all. Matthias was described later by police as quote-unquote meticulous. Now, according to True Crime England, it was around a month before Matthias and the girls took this multi-country road trip in the December of 2010 that those who were around Matthias reported a massive switch in his behaviour. It had become quite desperate and highly strung. It was during this time, according to True Crime England, that Matthias was granted permission by Irina to take the girls away on holidays for three weeks. It does not say where he took them, but I have my suspicions. And as we get into this episode, maybe you will too. But once he returned, his friends and colleagues noticed a massive change in his behaviour and they said that they felt that he was not coping at all with the separation from Irina. But according to the BBC, in February of 2011, 43-year-old Matthias was quote-unquote distraught by his separation from Irina. For Irina, the shining light in this whole thing that no one ever wants to go through were her girls. She said that they were smart and talented and she said that they had quote-unquote beautiful souls. So the girls did a weekly ballet class and it seems to me that another thing, you know, that I remember from my childhood is uh, often when there's a tenuous separation, they'll use something like a class or even grandparents in my case as the intermediary to pick up and drop off. So in this case, Irina would drop the girls off on the Friday at their weekly ballet class and Matthias would pick them up from the class and then have them for the weekend and drop them home by 5pm on the Sunday. And this was how it had worked out so far. On Friday, January 28th, 2011, this is what happened. Irina dropped the girls off at their weekly ballet class after school and as was the schedule after their class, Matthias picked them up in order to have them for the next two nights. Uh, so he loaded the girls into his car, which will come into play quite a bit in this case. Uh, it was a Swiss registered Audi A6, you know, a nice car. It's winter in Switzerland at this point, obviously. I looked it up and the weather in Lausanne or in late January is around four or five degrees Celsius. Uh, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, sorry. <clears throat> and there's lows of, you know, freezing, you know, zero degrees. Night times are bitterly cold. And this region experiences its most snowfall in January. And not that anyone wrote it, but I kind of, I know that people uh, January is a really dark time for a lot of people mentally. It's after the festive season and there's some psychological thing associated with it. And 
I was kind of thinking, you know, with the seasons and it gets dark early and everything, I'm positive that Matthias's mindset was even worse because it's cold, you don't have vitamin D, um, it's dark all the time and everything just kind of feels bad. Um, so according to police, on the day that Matthias picked the girls up, they were both wearing glasses, eyeglasses and blue jeans uh, and Alessia was wearing a white jacket with a over a striped shirt and Livia had a purple ski jacket on over a green T-shirt. But Interpol puts it differently. They said the girls are blonde and about three feet nine inches tall. When they were taken, Livia was wearing a green T-shirt, jeans, a violet ski jacket and Adidas sneakers. Alessia was wearing a T-shirt with red and white stripes, jeans, a brown jacket and black shoes, unquote. So see how they're a little bit different. So I kind of imagine, you know, in winter, their mum, Irina, picking them up from school and taking them to their ballet class and putting their coats on and kissing them goodbye and telling them that she would see them on the Sunday, you know. So Matthias picked them up and he drove away and he went back home with the girls so I looked up in Switzerland when kids go to school. Obviously, we start the school year in January down in the Southern Hemisphere, but things are different uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. And I know that the year starts next week in most parts of the Northern Hemisphere. But I looked up at what age you go to school in Switzerland. And so at four, they go to kindergarten and then they go on to school and there's no real gap. But I actually found out that education is only compulsory in Switzerland between the ages of nine and 11 still to this day. Um, so the girls were seemingly in primary school or what we'd call primary school here. Uh, but January, as I said, isn't the start of the school year as I had to remind myself. So I looked it up and their Christmas break would have finished, you know, weeks before. So I presume they'd been back at school for a couple of weeks at this point. So this is why Matthias has to bring them home on the Sunday afternoon because they've got to, you know, have a bath and get ready for the Monday. It doesn't work to drop them home on the Monday morning when Irina has to rush around to get them ready. So what follows next is very complicated, but I will take you through the timeline as easily as I can and chronologically and kind of keep some key thoughts till the end. So the following day, Saturday, the 29th of January, 2011, the girls and Matthias were seemingly still at his home in San Sulpice. And this is when he sent a text to Irina and he said to her, quote, we are all right, we'll return on Monday, unquote. Now, if you remember, the agreement is the girls have to be returned by 5pm on the Sunday to get them ready for bed early because they've got school on the Monday and to get them all ready. And Marie, like Irina wrote back to him, no, like they have to come home on the Sunday. But you can kind of tell from that text just how he wrote it. It's just his way or the highway. He doesn't care if they've got school. Uh, so neighbours of the family reported seeing the girls playing outside that weekend. And we do know um, basically up until... <sighs> the end of the weekend, they were in San Sulpice. Whether or not you think that this was a something that just occurred to Matthias to do, 
Um, I'll get into that in a bit. But basically, my theory is that this texting back and forth with Irina was the final straw for Matthias. I think he had an idea of what he wanted to do. But I think that when she said no, they have to come home as per the agreement on the Sunday, uh, he'd been sitting around all weekend with them. He, he decided to put his mental plan into place, so to speak. Uh, and that was the final straw for him. So that brings us to Sunday, the 30th of January, 2011. And at around midday, uh, the girls are sighted in Sansal Peace uh, with their father. Then 5pm rolls around and the girls are not returned by Matthias and there is no word from any of them. Irina went round to Matthias's house after the deadline, knocked on the door. The house was dark, no one was there and she started to panic. At almost the exact time that Irina would have been knocking on Matthias's door in Sansal Peace, we know from basically uh, a number of different things, ATM transactions, car GPS and the like, that Matthias Shep with his two girls in his Audi A6 crossed the Swiss border that it shares with France and crossed into France around Annecy. So this is where I'm going to refer to my map that I've got here because I have plotted the entire thing on Google Maps um, to kind of go through with you. And I think this is the easiest way to do it. And if you would like to see the screen grab of what I've mapped, um, all you have to do is go to unknownpassagepodcast.com, go to drop down to episodes, go to the newest one for Alessia and Livia. And at the bottom of that page, I've put the picture of the screen cap that I've done and it should be up by the time you are listening to this. So when they leave Sansal Peace, the way to go down, the way that they go is they go down basically to Geneva and cross into Annecy. Now, if you remember the Annecy shootings, um, if you remember the father of that, he went to Geneva across the border for like half a day and we don't know what he did. Uh, so I found that an interesting moment of kind of synchronicity. Annecy is around 90 minutes from Saint-Sulpice in Switzerland. So by that point, you've crossed over um, into France. Now, if you go back to Irina, she is frantic. By this point, she's contacting Matthias's friends and family and no one has heard from him at all. Um, around 9 o'clock that night, uh, Irina and... Matthias's cousin, who becomes involved to try to help, um, they decide to go to the police because they obviously don't have a good feeling about this. The Swiss don't have an Amber Alert system. A lot of countries don't. Um, and the police also have a different kind of approach to it in general. When it's a parent and they haven't returned from a custody visit with their kids and haven't returned the kids, um, as is the case with this case, they basically told Irina that she was being hysterical to go home and that because they were with their father, nothing would happen to them um, because Switzerland's a very safe place. And I guess when you live in a place like that, you don't automatically think the worst is going to happen. Uh, but I think Irina knew a lot more than that. And obviously Matthias's cousin did as well. His rapidly unwinding mindset, which also didn't seem to sway the police at all for a number of days afterwards. So, 
they said go home and see if the girls are dropped off at school tomorrow on the Monday by their dad. And unfortunately, they were not and they did not arrive at school. And I'm presuming Irina did not sleep for probably a year of this um, because even just photos of her before and photos of her her now, she's like a shell of herself. She lost her two daughters, um, no matter what way you look at it. And it's just so unfair. And it's so, it's such a punishment to her by someone who was meant to love her, you know, but ultimately it would take uh, about a week for Interpol to issue a yellow notice, which is uh, essentially people that they're on the lookout for across multiple countries, especially in Europe. And um, unfortunately by then it would be too late for a number of reasons. So we'll go back the Monday, he does not, the kids do not arrive at school. This is the 31st of January, 2011. But we do know at around 12.30 p.m., Matthias pops up in the city of Marseille, which is in the south of France, not far from the French Riviera, uh, which is home to, you know, Nice, Monaco, Saint-Tropez, all the celebrity kind of hotspots. Now, Marseille is not like a celebrity hotspot. It's one of the biggest cities in France. Um, it's, I believe it was the capital at one point. It's an old port city. It's very interesting. It's very rugged. A lot of people say it's, you know, quite dangerous. There's, I'm not going to get into Marseille too much on this. I've got a good friend that lives in Marseille. So Matthias Shep pops up with his daughters in Marseille and he goes to several ATMs or cash points in Marseille and takes out quite a lot of money. And when we get into that in a little bit, you would think that you would have to go to a lot because whether I, I just, if someone can make sense of this as we get into it, how you could possibly withdraw uh, thousands and thousands of euros in one day from multiple ATMs because wouldn't most bank accounts just have a day limit and it's usually not thousands and thousands, but of course, you can change that. But I just want to paint a picture of how far Marseille is from from Annecy, the last point where they crossed over into France. It's it's almost a five-hour drive. It's 424 kilometres. I can't tell you what that is in miles. And that's the straight shot right down. So essentially what you do, uh, the most direct way is you can go all the way down uh, through Valepe, through Avignon, which is kind of famous for its uh, lavender fields, especially at this time of the year um, when I'm recording this. And then you kind of bypass Montpellier and you end up on the south coast of France in um, in Marseille, which actually falls into the Provence region. There's also another way you can go where uh, you go through Lyon and then double back around, but I don't believe that's the way that he went. Um, so from Marseille, Matthias starts sending letters back to Irina. He sends her a postcard. According to True Crime England, it had a rabbit on it. Now, I don't know if there's a double meaning to that. The white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, that's just my thinking. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Who knows? Uh, but basically, according to the world.org, this postcard said that he was desperate and he could not live without her. And it was True Crime England who said that the postcard had a rabbit on it. This is when they're in their car this whole way. They take to the ocean with the car. You can load your car onto ferries, obviously, um, and that's just what they do. So that day, the Monday in the afternoon, 
Matthias goes to a ferry terminal because a lot of ferries leave, particularly to go down to uh, Corsica, which is where we'll be heading. Directly underneath Corsica is the Italian island of Sardinia. And you can also go to Africa from Marseille on a boat as well. So there's a lot of ferries that operate out of out of Marseille. Now, <clears throat> Matthias books three ferry tickets for him and the girls uh, to get the ferry from Marseille at the main port there to the island of Corsica, which I will talk about more later on in the episode because it's interesting in its own right. Uh, and I had a lot of thoughts kind of on it because I just recently wrote something for work about Corsica. Um, so this is to dock in the ferry port on the west side, which is called Propriano. So Corsica is part of France. Uh, it's one of its regions. It's kind of been heavily fought over uh, for a number of years between Italy and France. And at one point it was Italian centuries ago and then it became part of France. I'll get into that a little bit. And then directly below it is the much larger island of Sardinia. Both of them are very kind of popular island escapes, but Corsica is very interesting in its own right. And you'll find that Matthias and Irina had links to Corsica um, as we get into it. So they get on this ferry from Marseille and they go across to uh, to the island of Corsica, docking at the western side of the island in the port of Pripriano. Sorry, guys, I was saying Pripriano. That's like a, <laughs> I think I was watching Schnobel recently. It's Propriano. So they get onto the overnight ferry at Marseille uh, and I can't really get a direct read. It's 379 kilometres as the crow flies between Marseille right across, um, I believe it's the Adriatic um, or... Tyrrhenian Sea, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and you sleep on the ferry essentially, whether or not you get a, a a sleeper to yourself or you just sleep sitting up in a chair or whatever. Um, but according to the Ottawa Citizen, quote, witness accounts about whether Shep got on and off the ferry with the children were conflicting, unquote. Now I believe that he got on the ferry at Marseille with the children and I believe he got off the ferry uh, in Corsica with the children and there's a lot of eyewitness statements that kind of back that up. So no other sources state this except True Crime England who seems like they do their due, due diligence. Um, but they said something uh, that kind of made sense to me. So the link to Corsica, I would before I knew that Matthias and Irina had a history there, I immediately thought, why would he do this when he was at his wits end? Why would he take them to this French island so far from home in Switzerland? It just seems like a very random place um, for a relatively small island, you know, in the world. And I thought that it was, my immediate thought was that it's where Napoleon Bonaparte came from. I think that's probably why it's the most famous. And he was kind of politically persecuted, I guess, throughout his life and lived a lot of his life in exile. So I thought, did Matthias see himself as some sort of, having some sort of mental link to Napoleon Bonaparte? But I think I was getting a little bit too abstract with that um, because True Crime England said that the reason for travelling there was the girls were actually conceived there when Matthias and Irina were on a trip. And Matthias also frequently visited the area to go sailing. Now, whether or not this is where he took the girls the month before on their little three-week trip, I do not know. It would be the 
wrong place to go for weather in December and January, which I'll get into. At this point, it is the lowest season possible in Corsica. Very few tourists. It is not beach weather. Uh, it is cold even by kind of uh, Mediterranean standards. But Matthias had this link. This is where the girls' lives began and is this where the girls' lives were to end at his hands? That's the question. He also knew the island incredibly well. Now, on the ferry, True Crime England states that a witness saw the girls playing happily and the clothes that they said the girls were wearing matched. And, I mean, I don't question this at all because they're twins and they're a good-looking family and I think you'd remember that. So that brings us to the following morning. This is the 1st of February, 2011, 6.30 a.m. It's been a very long few days for these little girls, which is another thought I had, how tired they were and how much they haven't had a bed in this entire time. Matthias Shep disembarks the ferry in Propriano and it's up to you whether or not you believe that his daughters were with him because it's never been confirmed whether or not they were, which is very weird because when you get a ferry, like even if you don't have to show an ID or whatever, you're usually scanning your ticket to get on them. So especially these kind of overnight ferries, I've got them around Greece um, and in Thailand and they all operate the same, but they've never been able to confirm whether or not the girls, you know, got off it. And one of the questions is because he loaded his his car onto the ferry, a lot of people believe that when the girls weren't accounted for at certain stops or no one saw them, they could have been in the boot or the trunk of his car. So a local woman in Propriano on Corsica, she says that she saw Matthias and he stood out to her. Uh, he was departing the ferry and she said that she recalled that it was weird because there's barely any tourists that get off that ferry unless it's summer or a holiday and it was neither. It was a weird time of the year. Everyone's back at work and back at school um, and he just thought it was weird for this family to be having a trip. So it seems to point to the fact that the girls were with him. This woman, according to True Crime England, would go on to state that Matthias was seen talking to a dark a woman with dark blonde hair um, when he disembarked the ferry and she was watching them speaking and she noticed uh, two young girls in matching pink tracksuits, which does not match what they were last seen wearing. Um, but Irina said that the girls had matching pink tracksuits. So seemingly these had been packed for their trip with Matias. Um, so by all accounts, I do believe this woman, but I will say right now, I believe that the dark blonde-haired woman, she was just someone that they were making chit-chat with as they disembarked, and that's what I believe. Just happened to be the case that they were having a chat, you know. According to True Crime England, at around 12pm that day, so another six hours where these girls probably haven't slept and they're overtired, uh, who knows if they're eating proper meals, if they're warm enough, um, a petrol station worker on the island, and they don't say where, um, reports to have seen Matthias and Alessia and Livia at his petrol station on the island. He did report this to the police when it came out what had happened uh, in the coming weeks. And he basically said that the man had come into the petrol station to 
he'd filled up his car, he was paying for his petrol and he came into the shop to pay and one of the girls was with him and the girl was wandering around the shop and she picked up a lollipop and she asked her dad, she said, can I have a lollipop? And he replied, is your sister still in the car? You best get her one too. And the man paid for the petrol and the two lollipops and they got back into the car um, and carried on. And this all matches up with the description of his car, the girls, everything. And this is really the last eyewitness sighting of the girls and at this petrol station. And I can't tell you where on Corsica and Corsica. It's not a small island, but it's not a big island, if you get what I mean. And I'll get more into Corsica and its history in a, in a bit of a different way towards the end of this episode. So then it's nine o'clock at night. So another nine hours have gone by and we don't know what happened in those nine hours between the petrol station sighting and this happening. At 9pm that night, the 1st of February 2011, Matthias Shep boarded a ferry at the northern tip of the island of Corsica. He's basically crossed almost the whole of Corsica uh, from the southwest to the northern tip. The northern tip has a port called Bastia, where ferries leave from. He boards a ferry in Bastia uh, and he takes it right back to where he began on the French mainland, just down uh, from Marseille, basically on the French Riviera, a place called Toulon, uh, just like half an hour from Marseille. So he's done a loop. He's gone from Marseille across to Corsica. This is why it's good to look at that picture that I've done. It's on the episode page or on the Patreon. Goes right up Corsica, gets on a ferry again. Now there's no evidence the girls were with him at this point. And as I said, I'll come back to Corsica in my wrap up for a number of reasons. So by now the police are actively looking for the girls because uh, it rolls around to Wednesday, the 2nd of February, 9.13am, the last CCTV sighting of Matthias Shep. He is at a toll booth that essentially is crossing over into Italy. He is alone in his car and there is a somewhat grainy but colour picture of his car and it is his with him in the driver's seat crossing through the toll crossing into Italy and there's no girls in the car. This picture I've put on the episode page as well as in the Patreon. So the police have a lot of questions as they're kind of tracking this. The girls' passports were at home with Irina. They were not with Matthias. So the police were wondering how he was doing all this without any active identification for the girls and they believed that the way that he was doing it was when you had to cross a toll Europe, as I've talked about on a lot of episodes, it's basically borderless in the Schengen area. Switzerland is the only place that I had, you know, was told they may check your passport and they did. But you would think that when you're getting a ticket for a ferry, you generally have to show some sort of identification for different people, even if Corsica falls into France. So they believe that any time that this could have come up where he had to show identification for the girls, he had hidden them in the boot of the car or the trunk of the car. Now, if you look at a picture of the car, and I've put one on the episode page and the Patreon of the back of the car, it's basically a hatchback. But if you look into it, you can look pretty much straight into the boot. It's one of those open, almost station wagon types. And it's got one of those, I believe, roller things that kind of protect your gear in the back. Now, 
I find it crazy that you would think you would get away with that because they search a lot of cars and things. So whether or not you believe the girls were with him at this point at the toll when he was caught on CCTV and they were hidden in the back of the boot, I don't know, but it would seem if they pulled you over and they checked the trunk of your car and found two little girls, you would be like arrested immediately. Even if you said you were their father, it would just seem crazy to witness that. Um, they didn't know how they were doing it. By this point, they had been able to gain access to Matthias's home or the family's home that he was living in back in San Sulpice. And right there, for everyone to see was a handwritten will uh, dated January 27th, 2011 from Matthias. Now, this is almost worse than anything in the case, I believe, uh, what he wrote in it. So basically the will said that he left his um, all his belongings to Irina and the girls. However, he wrote a clause in it, which I believe was him just fucking mentally with Irina even more. He wrote a clause that stated that if the two girls were to die before him, he wanted everything to go to his brother and sister instead, which as we get into this, you'll realise that that was just a too fucking flipping the bird to Irina even more. Um, And if you don't hate him by now, I don't care what he was going through and I'll put that out there. I do not care. The minute you start doing this shit and the minute you drag these two little girls into it, all my sympathy evaporates. Um, I don't care. If you're doing it to hurt the wife, it means that, and you're going to kill your daughters, it means you only saw them as an extension of you. And when my friend Laura was on this podcast, when we talked about um, syndromes named after places, Laura discussed the narcissistic trait or psychopathic trait of your children being an extension of you. And it's well worth listening to because, it's often evident in family annihilators uh, the ease of killing your children because they are only an extension of you. They're not their own beings, at least, you know, to the psychopath. Two travel bags were also missing, uh, which seemed to be, you know, one thing you would think that he would be packing clothing for the girls, but all the girls' clothes I think bar one change of clothes, were still in the house. And Irina was able to account for all of that. And that's another chilling aspect to this because these two big bags are missing, but he didn't take anything. And why wouldn't he take anything? Because the girls probably wouldn't need it where they were going, uh, at least in Matthias's sick mind. Um, the girls' car seats were also still at the home and they were only little girls and they kind of needed these booster seats. Um, and, you know, he just he just didn't care. Um, but police by this point were getting to the point where they figured he's crossing tolls with them in the boot. He may have boarded even both ferries with them in the boot. Uh, it depends on what you believe. Sorry, a boot in Australia is a trunk of a car. So... Irina said at the time when she was pleading for help, and I would play them for you, but she's speaking French, um, so there's not real any point on, a, on an English-speaking podcast. Uh, she said that both girls were lively 
little girls. They were not shy. And if they felt like they were in danger, uh, they spoke fluent French and Italian and they knew to get someone and go up to someone, you know, probably a woman. Irina had taught them this stuff um, for help. Now the issue with that is they're with their dad and kids always trust their parents, you know, and this is the ultimate kind of betrayal of a father um, to use that trust to to do what they did. Then we flash forward basically another, you know, 24 hours almost, midday, Thursday the 3rd of February. Where do you think Matthias arrives by himself? He is observed in Naples in Italy. Now, to give you an idea of this entire trip, I'll tell you now, the entire trip that he takes is a 40-hour drive and that doesn't um, – that doesn't take into account stops or stopping for petrol or stopping for anything like that. So at this point from where he gets the ferry in Bastia across to Toulon in France, he then goes right up the French Riviera. You basically pass through um, Cannes, Nice, San Remo, all these beautiful spots. Uh, you then go to Genoa, which is where you cross over into Italy then you kind of head down the coast and you go to La Spezia, which is famous for the Cinque Terre, which is the famous medieval villages um, in kind of outside of uh, to the west of Bologna. Travels right down. Then he goes inland at about Pisa and he heads through Florence. You're basically going um, right down. You're going through the centre of Italy, you're going right through Tuscany, uh, you're going bypassing Rome and Naples is basically, if you're talking about Italy being a boot, it's almost the front of your ankle um, in the boot. Uh, it's in the southwest of Italy. It is a long way from where they all started. From where Matthias gets the ferry back to the French mainland after his little sojourn, strange little sojourn to Corsica. It is an 11-hour drive from Toulon, right up the French coast and down Italy to Naples. Why Naples? I don't know, but they do confirm that he was there and we don't know what he does there. So then at 10.47 that night, Matthias is in a town called Cerignola. Now it looks like Serignola, but it's Cerignola. So this is on the other side of Italy from Naples. So Matthias literally crosses the entire mainland of Italy almost in a direct line. Um, it's on the eastern side of Italy. It's kind of at the top of, if you're talking about it being a boot, it's at the top of, it's at your ankle on the heel side this time. Now, Cerignola is near Bari. Bari is where you'd go to get the ferry to Greece. Um, there's a lot of different kind of Brindisi's, another one, which is further down the coast. Um, it's a fair distance from Sicily, which is at the bottom of the boot. So he's crossed Naples to Cerignola, why Cherignola? We do not know, but we know he ends up there. This takes two hours from Naples uh, to this little town in the southeast of Italy. Unfortunately, at 10.47pm on the 3rd of February 2011, 
Matthias Shep goes to the train station at Cherignola. He waits for a fast-moving train to approach and he throws himself in front of it, killing himself. Now, I know I was bearing the lead a bit there, but I didn't want to kind of ruin it, I guess. Um, but that's how we cannot ask Matthias where the little girls are because he killed himself by throwing himself in front of a train. And as a result of this... This is where a lot of the focus, initially at least, of the investigation is. This is before they can kind of piece together the entire thing, which is made so complex by all the different countries involved. So the local police in Cherignola basically start searching local waterways, wells, areas that he could have hidden the girls or killed them and buried them um, because they think that they must have been with him until the end. And Later on, they would kind of, I guess, backtrack on that and say it's open to interpretation, the last spot that you believe the girls were in. Uh, Irina actually flew to Corsica because I think in her mind she believed that they had this history there and that he had done something to the girls there. Um, the Italian police used tracker dogs and helicopters right in the region surrounding the railway station and they were able to find his Audi A6 that had taken this mammoth trek. I believe in total it's 40 hours, 2,700 kilometres. Uh, I think it's about 1,600 miles total from their home in San Sulpice to where he ultimately killed himself and why. Why this weird, confusing itinerary? Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. So... Ultimately, according to True Crime England, crime scene techs were able to look throughout the car, uh, which is good. They did a really good job of that. And according to True Crime England, they found traces of the girl, one of the twins' saliva in the trunk of the car, which kind of lends to the fact that he was hiding them in the trunk when he was crossing tolls, or maybe at one point he had them no longer alive in the trunk. You would think if you picture it, I guess, a little girl lying down flat and him telling them to stay quiet and stay in the back, lying on your tummy with your head to the side, kind of looking at each other, you could, a little bit of drool could come off your lip, you know what I mean? However, there was no forensic tests or toxicology tests uh, could be completed on the saliva because of the small sample size, so they were never able to confirm who it belonged to or, I guess, if it was even the girls. Uh, with the CCTV footage showing Matthias alone earlier at the toll as he crossed out of France and into Italy in the northern part of Italy and the traces of what they deemed to be saliva, the police pretty much honed in on the fact that the girls had been in the boot of the car when Matthias crossed the toll, something that now they're up in the air about all these years later. And then to add insult to injury, Irina started receiving even more letters. The postcard came in, sent from, you know, Marseille with the rabbit on it and the words from Matthias. But then Matthias dropping off at different ATMs along the way started to, I guess, make sense to police because when they found him, he only had 100 euros on him, but he had withdrawn the equivalent of around 6,000 euros. Some sources say 4,000, some say six, some say eight. I believe it's around six. 
thousand euros, which is in Australian dollars at the time it was around ten thousand Australian dollars. I can't tell you what it was in US dollars. So they were like, well, where's all this money he's been taking out along the way? And it turned out that he was sending a lot of it uh, to to um, Irina, his wife. She started receiving this series of letters that some of them, you know, were sent from Bari in Italy right before he killed himself. It was sent over eight letters and each one had a chunk of money in it and the money amounted to 6,000 euros. Now, he had taken out 8,000 in total, but he had sent Irina 6,000. And considering he was only found with 1,100 on him, there's around 2,000 euros unaccounted for to this day. Um, and I can't even begin to tell you, you know, what he did with that because I doubt he spent it over the course of three days traveling um, or four days. I just highly doubt that. So, He's just sick sending these letters. I don't know what the money was for. I In his warped mind, was he like sending his life savings to Irina? Sorry about this, but I have to do this. Um, considering the last of the letters was sent from Bari before he went up to Cherignola to kill himself, I believe he probably just chose Cherignola because it was a small kind of place with less people to likely stop you if you try to commit suicide, just a small train station. Basically, it took um, a while, but ultimately the police confirmed that Matthias Shep had, in one of these letters, had alluded to the fact that he had killed the children. In fact, he outright stated it. Uh, the letter was not released to the public, but this Italian newspaper was given permission by the police to publish a single sentence from the letter from Matthias. And this single sentence was, quote, the children rest in peace, they have not suffered, unquote. So this reminds me of that Timothy Pitson case and those poor little skeleton brothers case. It's just such a sick thing to do to somebody. Um, but in this instance, while I have questions about especially the Pitson case, I I believe that they he did kill them. Um, and that's up to you whether or not you believe that. Um, but I do believe he did and I'll get into where I think they are and why towards the end of this episode. Police also searched Matthias's home computer. This search showed that in the days leading up to this multi-country trip, he searched for information about poisoning, firearms and committing suicide. He also searched for the ferry timetables for the ferries across to Corsica. On the 5th of February 2011, uh, a witness came forward who I've seen her interviewed as well. She said that she'd seen the two little girls uh, with a woman who had dark brown hair in Italy. Uh, she, she, people kind of ran with this thinking that Matthias had paid someone to take the girls uh, and to look after them. And the police went to that location and they found nothing. Um, the woman was of a similar description to the woman that Matthias was seen speaking to in Corsica. However, we're just talking about like dark blonde hair. Like that's all we've got. A lot of women have that. And I don't believe this woman. I, I don't believe. Um, I think she thinks she saw what she saw, but I don't believe she saw what she thinks she saw, if that makes sense. A search of Matthias's boats, which were moored on Lake Geneva, found nothing. And the month after Matthias was found dead, 
the Toronto Star reported something interesting because when they found his car, I guess you're wondering about a GPS because it's an Audi A6. Of course, it's going to have one. It's a fancy car. When they found the car in Cherignola right near the train station, the GPS had been disabled and it was missing. It was no longer in the car. And this was one of the early on mysteries. But weeks later, uh, the Toronto Star reported, quote, Italian police found a microchip from Shep's car's navigational device on Saturday. The police official in Foggia leading the investigation said the chip was found Saturday about 15 metres from where Matthias Shep, 43, threw himself under a train in Cerignola in the Poglia region of southeastern Italy on February 3rd. Alfredo Fabricini said the microchip will be sent to its US manufacturer in hopes it contains data about the route driven by Shep in the days after he and his daughters Alessia and Olivia disappeared from their mother's home in Switzerland, unquote. Unfortunately, that happened. That was 11 years ago and it came to nothing. They weren't able to get any data. But my thinking is he took it with him and put it in his pocket, hoping that when he got mashed up by the train, sorry, not sorry, uh, the microchip uh, would be as well, uh, further kind of muddying the situation and making it confusing so they couldn't track any of his movements because on that GPS, I believe, they would know exactly where he stopped off for how long and I think he knew that that GPS had the answer on and he didn't want to give that answer to anyone uh, because he's a selfish prick. At the end of February the police um, gave Irina the keys to Matthias's villa like she ended up with the family home which is good although she doesn't have a family to put in it now which makes me sick to my stomach. Um, She ended up going through the house and she found something in the bin that she does not believe that the police had even searched the bin Uh, Obviously, no one had been there, so they're not taking the rubbish out. And she says she found a note in the bin that was written on a piece of paper and it said, delete Facebook. Now, whether or not this is just another red herring for Matthias because he thinks he's the Riddler or something, I don't know. Um, But that came to nothing and it seems that he had deleted his Facebook by that point. Why would you want to delete Facebook? I don't know, lots of reasons. On October 7th, 2011, this would have been the girl's seventh birthday, you know, nine months after they went missing. Irina launched a organisation that still exists today and that I've used throughout the research for this episode. It's called Missing Children Switzerland. She is an intellectual property lawyer, so she set it up in her free time and she now lobbies for an Amber Alert system for Switzerland. Uh, to get on top of these abductions as they happen to stop what happened to her little girls and education for the police, particularly about parental abductions. The website is missingchildren.ch, which is CH is the, you know, Swiss, um, the letters they use. I've never understood why, if someone could tell me. Um, And it's an amazing resource. I spent about two hours going through the website. It's got so much information. They've got a dedicated phone number, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's 116000 uh, if you're in a domestic situation, if you need, um, if your child's been abducted. It is manned by people who have been there and they are going to support you even if the police um, will not. So let's get into some sites and some leads. Three three years later, in early 2014, a letter was received by an Italian journalist who spends a lot of her kind of working life tracking missing children across Europe. 
This unfortunately hit the worldwide news before it was really confirmed and it's one of those red herrings that you always see in relation to as Madeleine McCann being seen in an African village, that kind of thing. Um, this letter alleged that Alessia and Livia were living in Canada, in Ottawa, um, and by this stage, you know, Irina wouldn't let herself get her hopes up ever. Um, but basically the person who wrote this letter was a photographer and he said that they never said where he was located in any sources either, but I believe it was um, France somewhere. He sent this letter uh, to this Italian journalist who'd been covering this case for three years and he said that he worked in a shop once upon a time that occasionally made fake passports and he said that the girls had come into the shop with their dad, he'd made them two fake passports, one for the girl, one girl to go to Ottawa and the other one went to Quebec. Now, obviously this did not turn out to be the case, although I believe it's part of why Canada's done a fair bit of coverage of this case. Um, but they were never able to confirm it. And I think this guy was just obviously, I think he was looking for attention. Um, you don't generally just run a fake passport operation like out of the back of your shop and come forward and admit that. Um, but maybe he didn't. It was someone else. I just don't think um, it was the girls. And because no money was unaccounted for except for 2,000 euros and you don't, two little girls, if you're going to look after them and they're six until they're 18, you need a bit more than 2,000 euros. And a rich guy like, you know, Matthias Shep, you know, he'd be paying if he was paying someone to look after them, it'd be in the six figures, um, at least, you know, half a million. So this didn't turn out to be the case. Um, this woman who's the Italian journalist, she says she's received random tips from all over the place. One was a woman who said she's, they saw Livia in Ottawa, um, in 2014, which we're talking about a little girl who would almost be 10 by this point. And she's a very regular looking girl, especially Livia. Um, and I'm sure these people mean well, but I don't believe that any of these sightings were the girls. Um, a third tip came in from La Chute in Canada, and this was a claim that twins who resembled the missing girls attended a birthday party of someone that this person knew. Uh, it was not them. Um, another lead came in that said that the girls were living on the Italian island directly beneath Corsica, uh, Sardinia, which was not the case and looked into. Uh, in 2014, Irina wrote to the Ottawa Citizen, uh, spoke to the Ottawa Citizen, and she told them about how she basically had to make a choice whether or not to kill herself or to live her life um, after her daughters were abducted and presumed murdered. She told them, quote, I think in an extreme situation, the choice becomes very simple. We have two choices, to live or to die. I could never have the courage to kill myself, unquote. About the letter that was received saying that two girls had travelled on fake passports to Canada, which I guess you could tie it in with Matthias being born in Canada, um, whether or not you buy into that at all. Uh, she said, quote, this was in 2014 though, quote, it's hope, hope and despair actually because the situation is quite desperate. It's actually quite violent for me. It's very personal. That's the tragedy for me. It's a story without an end and it's not just a story that belongs to me. It belongs to everyone, unquote. Irina's an amazing woman if you ever look her up. I don't know how she's kept going because I probably would have 
ended it, um, to be honest with you. Uh, if you get to that point and you can't have any more kids, by that point your whole life is consumed by looking for these ones. Uh, what a cruel thing to do to someone. Um, and I don't care what Matthias was going through. If there's a hell, I hope he's, he's rubbing shoulders with Hitler because he sucks. In 2020, Irina, through missingchildren.ch, published age progression photos of the girls. Um, it's funny, these photos, I've put them on the website and on the Patreon, they're, they're almost identical. They kind of become identical when they weren't as little girls. They had totally different faces and I just wonder if that's, like, correct or if, if they would do it again, would someone else have a different kind of version of it because I just found it interesting. Like, how do you know that they would become near identical, which the photos are essentially a duplicate of the same photo twice if they didn't look identical as little girls. Um, as I said at the start of the episode, today they'd be 17, next month they'd be 18 in October. Like Nate and I discussed on the Annecy episode, the confusion of the multi-country trip taken by Matthias and the subsequent investigation that spans Switzerland, France, Italy. Uh, he crossed through Monaco at one point, which is a principality, but it it's another country. Um, you make it more and more confusing and you make it more and more difficult. And I feel that that was Matthias's plan. He wasn't a dumb guy. Um, he was meticulous, as the police put it. So if you want to know what I think, this is where I'm going to get into it. If you don't like speculation, which is all we've got in this case, and it's been 11 years, then maybe switch off now. Working backwards, deduction indicates to me that the girls made it to Corsica and did not leave Corsica. The fact that it held special significance to Matthias, that sightings stopped there, and that the girls were conceived there, and that to Matthias, their lives would end there and begin there, begin there and end there, that would be the final kind of full circle kick in the teeth to Irina that we made these two here and I will kill them here. Uh, and that's what I think and that's, I don't know, but that's what I think. It's a twisted full circle for him uh, where he knew that Irina was moving on because he blew it because of his behaviour. So to me, they are on that island and it seems that the police know this too because most investigations even today come back to Corsica. So in a weird way, normally I do this earlier in the episode, but this is why I wanted to hold on and talk about Corsica later. I'm going to go into the Corsica a little bit because we'll probably never go there again, but also to describe the kind of um, hist a bit of the history and the landscape of this island because it's very interesting. Uh, it's very rugged. It's very forested. It's very mountainous um, and it's it's where I believe the girls are, but I'm interested to know if you believe that too. Corsica is a French island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about four hours or 100 miles by ferry off the southern coast of France. Uh, and you can also get it from the ferry or fly in from anywhere really, but get the ferry from Italy as well. It sits directly on top of Sardinia with a little gap in between them, almost like a figure eight with a gap in between. And the ferries from France regularly head down from cities like Marseille or Toulon, uh, where Matthias and the girls got on and then Matthias got off on his return, uh, as well as on the French Riviera, places like Nice. 
while relatively small, it is mighty and it is important in the course of history. It's nicknamed the Isle of Beauty and Corsica has always been a place I've wanted to visit. Um, I want to go to Sardinia and Corsica. I would love to go to both and just spend a month on both. Uh, it's this dramatic, rugged, stunning and fascinating island. It's actually the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. Um, the bigger ones are Sicily, Sardinia and Cyprus, all of which kind of dwarf Corsica. Um, but Corsica is not small. It spans 8,722 square kilometres. So if you believe the girls are there, they could be anywhere. And it is home to around 350,000 native Corsicans, as well as, I guess, expats. And they speak French, although there is a native dialect uh, Corsican. And a lot of Corsicans also speak Italian, so they're bilingual or trilingual as well. The native Corsican language is called Corsu, and Napoleon was a famous speaker of this. Um, and you will generally only hear it not in the cities of Corsica or the bigger towns. You'll hear it in the villages, um, the smaller villages and the rural areas. Long fought over for... <laughs> thousands of years by Italy and France. Corsica is a territory of France officially today, um, like Sardinia underneath it went to Italy. It's a rugged mountainous island with some of the most beautiful, hidden, perfect beaches you'll ever witness. I put up a picture in the Patreon like I do every week and people can guess where we're going and uh, most people said Greece. The closest was patron um, Marina. She said Sardinia. Uh, she said Sicily. Most people thought it was a Greek island. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. It's got gorgeous hiking trails, thick forest, these charming medieval villages. It dates back a very long time. Today, luckily, it is still a relatively hidden secret that has not been overtaken by celebrities or influencers so far, like mainland Nice or Cannes or Saint-Tropez have, um, or the way that Sardinia is going as well, unfortunately. To drive from the north tip to the south tip of Corsica will take you around four hours. If you ask anyone who knows anything about Corsica for what is the most famous fact about this island, most people will say the same thing if they know anything about it, that it was the birthplace of Napoleon Bonaparte, who was born to a noble family of Italian um, extraction on the island in the year 1769. Corsica had the, I think it was the year before Napoleon was born. It had been annexed by France and become part of France or a territory of it. And Napoleon's family spoke this Corsu, this uh, native Corsican language now, or dialect. Napoleon, if you don't know him, he would go on to become one of the most important military war leaders of all time. Um, Paris, you can't walk around a corner without seeing either a statue of Napoleon or something that he commissioned. We've talked about him a little bit on the Mona Lisa episode, uh, his importance of opening the Louvre. He was very liberal and progressive for the time. He, he wanted to make parks and gardens across France, museums, take them away from the aristocracy who were the only eyes that were able to look upon these things um, and give them back to the people. I believe he really did love France. Fun fact or funny, they're making a movie about um, Napoleon at the moment and Joaquin Phoenix is playing him and I saw a picture of him and 
Gladiator is my third favourite movie of all time. I had my annual, annual viewing last night, which is a whole other story. And then I watched Troy for the first time. I'd never seen that before. And I have lots of thoughts on that. But I just thought it was weird because there's so many good French actors. And Joaquin Phoenix is amazing. And he's one of the best actors of his generation. I've loved him since he was a teenager. Um, but there's just so many good French actors. And if you're going to do it and most of them speak English. Um, but the ones that I can name, unfortunately, like Vincent Cassell, who I is one of my favourite actors of all time, um, he's older now than when Napoleon died. So I guess they're trying to find someone of a certain age. Who do you think should play Napoleon instead of Joaquin Phoenix? Let me know. So Napoleon would go on to become one of the most important and discussed, controversial yet revered military leaders in history. He would lead France as a general and later he would crown himself emperor in the wake of the French Revolution. He was ultimately exiled firstly to the Mediterranean island of Elba for a time. He then made a comeback and after his defeat at Waterloo, Waterloo, the Brits then exiled him to the island of St Helena, which is off the coast of Brazil, essentially. And that's where he lived out his final seven years of his life. Um, But despite all of that, Napoleon's heart was always in Corsica and he wrote prolifically about Corsica and spoke about it. And he never actually returned there because he died on St Helena. And I don't believe he had returned to Corsica since he was a young man, but it formed his foundations. Napoleon died in 1821 at the age of 51 on the island of St Helena, which was a British territory. Uh, And he is interred, if you want to go visit him, he's at the museum, which is the military museum, um, Les Invalides, it's in Paris, but he never made it back. Now, if you go to Corsica, you can visit the family house of the well, it's Bonaparte, but it was actually Bonaparte uh, because it was Italy, but they dropped the U. Um, so this is in what is the largest city slash town on the island of Corsica, um, and it's called Ajaccio. Uh, I've watched someone pronounce that. It's spelled A-J-A-C-C-I-O. So this is located on the island's west, and it's one of the routes that we don't know because we don't have that GPS data, but Matthias Shep potentially could have driven up through Ajaccio. Uh, It's the most populous part of the island. Um, It's home to around 70,000 of the 350,000 in Corsica today. Napoleon's mother was the pivotal figure in his life and he once said the, quote, quote, the future destiny of the child is always the work of the mother, unquote. And I was kind of thinking that in relation to the little girls and Irina and kept having these kind of moments where it came back to, I wonder if he liked Corsica because he, Matthias, because of some connection to Napoleon, there's no evidence of that. I was just, just interesting. Or there's the term a Napoleon complex, (laughs) Um, but Matthias was tall, but actually Napoleon wasn't that short, which I'll talk about in a minute. Napoleon, um, started learning French at school because he spoke this native Corsu and he only started learning French at around 10 years old and he would ultimately become fluent in French but he had trouble with it for a long time because Corsicans, this native Corsu, they have this really distinct accent which people can pick out on the French mainland. So when he went to school on the French mainland, 
He would get picked on for all of this stuff by his schoolmates. He was treated really horribly. Um, they would pick on him for his looks, his accent, how slow he was at learning French and his height, which Napoleon was five foot seven, which at the time was standard for a guy. And I learned that from Bill Burr's podcast. Someone wrote in and said he wasn't that short. And throughout history, it's kind of been like, this story that's been told through the ages that he was short and he had a Napoleon complex and that's where that comes from. But he actually wasn't. Um, he was, he was um, literate, which at the time was very <laughs> rare uh, in 1790 when he was going to school. France had a population of 28 million at the time. I think it's around 80 million now or 88 million or something um and fewer than three million people could like speak French or write it um I believe it was fewer could speak like most people were they couldn't read or write essentially um and only three million people of 28 million could and Napoleon could but he was bullied for all kinds of stuff now I won't get into the many wars Napoleon fought on all fronts it would take a lifetime. I'm sure there's a, you know, Dan Carlin probably did like a, you know, 65 hour podcast series on it or the liberal policies he brought to France. But I will say um, that Napoleon, if when you talk about Napoleon and important figures in his life, most of them were women. Um, and other than his mother, who he looked up to so much and who he said made him the man he became, the other woman in his life was his first wife, Josephine, who many of you may have heard of. Um, he married her in 1796. I believe he was in his mid to late 20s. Um, and he, she, Josephine had had a terrible life before she met Napoleon. She had lived through the French Revolution in Paris. Her husband had been killed and, like, his head put on a stake. Um, it was brutal, like, because he was a revolutionary. Her and her son had, and her daughter from that marriage had managed to escape, but now she was a single mother and she was, like, looked down upon. Um, and Napoleon actually adopted her son, Eugene, but her daughter by that point was grown up, so Napoleon didn't adopt her. But Napoleon always looked to Eugene as, you know, a son of sorts. Um, he loved Josephine and he always said she was the love of his life, but as was the time he had mistresses all over the place and according to most historians he had children all over the place as well but funnily enough Josephine never conceived a child um, with Napoleon and much like Henry VIII with a couple of his wives this started to piss Napoleon off. I read that they put it down to Josephine experiencing um, a lot of stress as a result of her husband's execution and they also said that she'd had an abortion in her 20s, which I imagine in um, the 1770s when that happened would have been a horrific thing that could have rendered you um, infertile and probably could have killed you as well. And they believe that the pressure that Napoleon was putting on her wasn't helping either. So she couldn't produce an heir for Napoleon, which is what he wanted because he was crowning himself emperor by this point. And so instead of keeping trying or sticking with her and not having an heir, he chose to divorce her purely so he could remarry um, to search for an heir. He didn't have her murdered or anything like that. He wasn't like Henry VIII. Um, but when he was first exiled to the island of Elba, which is in the Mediterranean, not far from Corsica, um, he actually found out during that time that Josephine had died of illness in 
another part of France on mainland France. Um, and he tried to kill himself as a result of that. And then he didn't leave his room for like a week. Um, cause he was devastated. But in 1810, he remarried, uh, he remarried and he was, you know, in his forties by now, he remarried a 19 year old who was the Archduchess of Austria. Her name was Marie Louise and she was distantly related. Uh, she was the great niece of Marie Antoinette. They're all inbred in these parts. So he essentially married a German royal. Now <laughs> I had to include this. Uh, Louise, who was 19 and obviously not stoked that she was marrying um, an old, short, seemingly not particularly good looking dude, no matter how much power he had, uh, she was less happy. And she wrote at the time, quote, just to see the man would be the worst form of torture, unquote, which is harsh. So when he was exiled to Elba the first time, um, she actually never joined him. She didn't even care enough to do that. <laughs> but at some point in time, she must have been able to look at him for at least seven seconds because they were able to conceive a child. Actually, you don't even have to look at them to do that. Um, they conceived a child who was Napoleon II and he was born in 1811. Napoleon was a pretty old father because by this point, life expectancy wasn't that long. Um, and he lived until the kid was 10 years old and he died in 1821, the Emperor Napoleon. Uh, he died, they really can't be sure, like they think he might have had stomach cancer. He was, I think he was only 51, um, but that was kind of a long life considering how many battles he was in and things like that. Uh, it could have been any number of things. People died of everyday things all the time there. It could have been a cold. Uh, but he was happy, obviously, when he died or when he was about to die because he had a son and an heir that was going to take over. But unfortunately, uh, 10 years after Napoleon Sr. died, Napoleon Jr. also died at 21 um, and he never had any children. So the lineage kind of ended. But I did find a thing that said that Napoleon, through all the quote unquote illegitimate kids that he had during his reign, they've actually mapped his like phenotype or uh, haplotype and got his DNA through these people and they have the living descendants like in France still, which is crazy because they've done that with Da Vinci as well, which we talked about on that episode. But Josephine was always his great love and actually his final word before he died was Josephine. But Corsica, while right now as this episode is released, is warm and busy and people are in their final week of their summer holidays. February 1st, when the girls arrived with Matthias on the island, uh, it was not. Propriano, the port they disembarked on, only gets to around 14 degrees. That's why that woman remembered because she said, just tourists just don't come here now at this time, especially not with little girls and in winter. There's You can't go to the beach or anything. And the the nights are really cold. It gets down to three or four degrees. And it's also the rainiest, the rainiest month on the island as well, uh, which gave me a lot of thoughts in terms of the ground being um, softer, I suppose. So... My timeline, you know, they arrive in at 6.30am into Propriano and we know Matthias departs on the ferry back to the mainland at 9pm that night. So in that 15-hour gap, we've got, he's got to cross almost the length of Corsica, which takes about four hours, not counting stops and things. So he's got 
15 hours to do what should take in one straight shot four hours so I don't know where this petrol station sighting happened but I do believe it was them so I basically mapped it um, and looked at it on Google Maps and from what what I was able to gauge there's two different ways he could have gone um, they could have headed the most common route, which it recommends to you, which is inland from Propriano on the west coast. You cross the body of the island. Um, this is almost entirely forested, this drive. You then reach the eastern coastline of Corsica and you drive right up a straight shot up the coastline to Bastia, which is where he then boarded the ferry alone and went back to the French mainland. Now, the second route is almost entirely inland up through Ajaccio, which is where Napoleon was from. Uh, the city of Corta, past Montecinto, which is the highest mountain on Corsica. And then you end up in Bastia, where you can get the ferry. Um, so he had he could have done either of them. And because we don't have the GPS, we just don't know. But if I knew where that service station sighting took place, you'd be able to figure out which route he was on. But if you were asking me which route they took, I would say the inland one that takes you past Montecinto. Now, Montecinto actually snows quite a lot, especially in January and February. It is almost entirely surrounded by forests. You can climb Montecinto. It's really popular, one of the most popular things to do on Corsica. It's the highest mountain on the island. It only takes two hours to get to the summit and back again. Um, in winter, it is cold and often snowy or raining. And people hike and snowshoe in winter, but crowds are way less than in the warmer months, particularly summer. I started researching this episode believing that Matthias disposed of Alessia and Livia like many many people do off the ferry. He threw them off the side of the ferry, either coming into um, Corsica, which I can't believe because people saw them on the island and I believe those sightings. A lot of people believe that he then got back on the ferry at Bastia with them and threw them off into the Mediterranean Sea by the time he got to the mainland and then there's the theory that he disposed of them they were in the car as they crossed into Italy on the final leg and he could have disposed of them anywhere from the French Riviera down to Naples and across to Cerignola um it's up in the air but my I believe that they're somewhere on Corsica and sadly their remains are yet to be discovered um I think most people believe that they they are dead um and I firmly do unfortunately Matthias wanted to hurt Irina in the most absolute final way while retaining the girls to himself even in death which is messed up I want to wrap up this episode with a few facts from Irina's Foundation's website, Missing Children Switzerland. Every two minutes a child is reported missing in Europe. Missing Children Europe compiles call statistics from 22 hotlines, which are the 116000 number, including ours in Switzerland. And this is a few stats from those hotlines and the statistics they've got from it. In 2021, they received 54,655 calls concerning cases of missing children, um, up 13% from previous years. 57% of these cases concerned runaways, 26% concerned parental abductions, 6% are related to 
the phenomenon of child migration. 2% represent lost or injured children and 8% are disappearances of other types. It should be noted that only a small proportion of the cases processed, around 1%, concerned kidnappings of criminal origin. So it just shows just how many are either runaways, which is why police often don't act immediately, or their parental abduction cases. If you have information on the whereabouts of Livia and Alessia Shep, whether dead or alive, please contact their mother, Irina, who runs Missing Children Switzerland. This is missingchildren.ch or you can call their dedicated hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It is 116 from within Europe. Think of the girls in October because they would be turning 18 and they should be. They should be doing all the things that 18-year-olds can do and they should have them, their mum should have them back no matter what with her. Um, it's just devastating and that's why I wanted to do their case. It's really upsetting. Visit the website. I've put up the episode page for this to look at pictures of um, Matthias, uh, Livia, Alessia, Irina, uh, the scene... Um, you know, the search, all kinds of things related to the case. Uh, you know, were you on Corsica or in any of these places I've talked about um, on the ferry on these particular dates? I know it's a long shot, but look in the backgrounds of your photos. Um, weirder things have happened. This was for Medell, this episode. So um, they just said, do any case. So thank you for allowing me the freedom to do that, Medell. Um, become a patron. Uh, it links off the website, unknownpassagepodcast.com, or just search for Unknown Passage in the Patreon app. $1 to $5 a month, you get a shout out at the start of the next episode after you join. $5 and over a month, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode like this one and many we've been doing lately and what we'll be doing next week as well. If you like the podcast, um, and don't want to join Patreon but want to contribute uh, to the upkeep of the website or just to, you know, help out as thanks or whatever, um, it's unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com on PayPal. Leave a rating or review if you like the show. I will probably be back next week. It's my birthday next Friday, and while I am really not interested in celebrating it as I get to an age where I don't feel like it anymore, um, I probably won't be back on the Friday because that is the day, um, but I will probably drop you an episode next week regardless because it's not very exciting as you get older, unfortunately. Um, but feeling good um, and, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for your ongoing support and nice words and thank you for bringing awareness um, to these cases, especially when they're little girls like this and they can't speak for themselves and they trusted, you know, the one person you're supposed to be able to trust. Um, I will be back soon. I hope you have a lovely weekend and um, we'll talk then.